We've been working our way through the book of Romans. This is part 45, the letter that changed the world. And tonight the topic is genuine spirituality and how to know if you have it. We're looking at one verse tonight. I think there are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 words that we're going to study tonight. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. If if the quest, and this is really loud and ringy right now, isn't it? Something just happened there. I don't think it was I. If the quest for personal righteousness fails, the reasons for its failure are probably in this verse. That's how important this verse of Scripture is. There's a sense in which uh, this verse kind of forms a a test. The last 12 verses of this chapter, and then on even into 13 and 14, they're all Paul's way of applying. This is what Paul does. He gives you a doctrine. He gives you an idea. And then he takes some time and he, and he, and he applies it. And he unpacks the significance of it and the meaning of it. So you get the truth in the form of just a teaching and then, he's, and then it's like Paul says, now here's, here's what this looks like when you start to live this out. So there's doctrine. He always starts with the doctrine, but then he takes it and he starts fleshing it out and applying it to our lives. So how will the teaching of you know, Romans 12, say 1 to 8, on the renewed mind, don't be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that part, Romans 12, 1 and 2, and then 3 through 8, the ministry that Christians have in the body of Christ, their gifts, so the renewed mind in the fellowship of the church. How does this reveal itself in people who really get it? If, if God, by His Spirit, gets deep inside my mind, your mind, if, if there's a renewing, a transforming, a reshaping, what, what will that kind of spirituality look like? We know how it's described in the text. We can see the instructions. We can read the doctrines. But, but, if, but if the Holy Spirit reaches my mind and starts to reshape and transform it as I serve Him in a local body of believers, what's that going to look like? How will I know if it's happening? That's what Paul starts to deal with in this ninth verse. So he's talking about the, the activity of a genuinely spiritual character being formed. It might well be that there are no verses more important than, than this one in terms of boiling the renewed mind down to its sort of bare essentials. 14 words, and what they do is they, they scrape away everything that's peripheral to a pure and holy heart. 
So if someone came up to me and said, please give me the essence of a transformed mind, spirituality in a nutshell, here's, here's a verse I would recommend. If, if you want to check your heart, if you want to keep your soul on track, here's a verse to look at. I have three or four thoughts. Four, I think. One. Everything in the Christian life begins with the experience of deep inward love. Love for God, first of all, and love for others. We talked about that this morning. Let, let love be genuine. There's the first four words. And so Paul deals with both love for God, love for brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, he, 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 he thinks of Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So everything starts. Everything in the renewed mind starts, first of all, with this love for God. We hear that so much and we sing about it so much that it's hard for us to hear those words and really uh, bump into them to really let them land with the kind of weight they should have in our minds. Spiritual life starts with love for God. It, there's nothing without this. So, so spiritual life doesn't begin with mechanics. It doesn't just begin with a list of rules, which is surprising when you read that ninth verse. Remember those two important words? Way back when we started this series, when, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, and we were looking at, I said there were two words to describe spiritual life. Um, external and organic. Anybody remember that? Oh, good. Five. <laughs> we're coming up to that time of year, right? Jesus was born, go out and kill a tree. And so we get it. We, we bring it home or we take it out of the box and we hang stuff on the tree. That's external. It looks pretty, but everybody who has a brain in their head knows that the ornaments don't come from the tree. But next spring, I know you don't think it's possible, next spring all those bare, freezing cold trees, and you'll see little blossoms coming on them. Nobody hangs them on. They come from inside the tree. Okay, That's organic. External is the Christmas decorations. Organic is life from the inside. This is, what, this is what spiritual rebirth and spiritual life is. It's organic. It comes from the inside and it's birthed in a love for God. It's not just a list of rules. There's holiness. But it doesn't start with the rules. It starts with a love for God. And that way, John says, the commands aren't a burden. I, I love my wife, Rini. Because I love her, it's not a burden for me not to have relationships with other women. I don't even think about that. There's a love there. There's a delight there. That's the way it is in, in, uh, in love for God. That's where spiritual life starts. Love must be genuine. Let love be genuine. Why do I do the things I do? Why do I come to church, even on a Sunday night? Is it, is it a matter of just keeping attendance? Is it keeping a list? Do 
Do I do it because I have to? There's just no getting around this starting place. So when Paul starts to boil spiritual character down to its essentials, it's love for God first. Love for others, love for God first. It, and here's why, obviously, here's why Paul starts here. This is what genuine love does. Love always pushes and motivates and drives and shapes. Love is always totalitarian. That's the way love is. True love makes a claim on the heart. True love can't be silenced. It can't be put down. Whatever you truly love dominates your thoughts. Genuine love, whatever you love, it, it, takes, it takes all the reservation out of your heart. It's always extravagant. It covers everything else. It focuses our attention. You give yourself to the object of your love. Loyalty to what you truly love is never a burden. It's a delight. So, obviously, Paul says, don't just trickle on past this. Let, let love be genuine. There's a, there's a hunger for God. You can't be spiritual just by rote. You, you can't be spiritual just by an instruction manual. You can't be spiritual just because it was your upbringing. You can't be spiritual just by memory. The driving force is love. Point number two. We must constantly follow the Holy Spirit into genuineness and authenticity in our walk with Jesus. You can see it. Love is emphasized, but it, let love be genuine. That's the word, verse 9. Let it be genuine. And the reason, I think, for that caution is Paul knows that not only can we deceive others about our love for God, sometimes we can even deceive ourselves. I mean, there are things that feel like love for Jesus that are mostly that, just feelings. You, you know, you can, you can get the right music, the right lighting, the right song, and you can feel like you love God, and then the meeting ends, and you're not with church people, and the pull of the world and all sorts of distractions are right there enthralling your heart. So, so I can live a life of compromise even when I feel like I, I do love God during the worship time. That's surely, I think that's what John cautions against, A, in 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father isn't in him. Those are striking words. Or 1 John 5, 3 and 4. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments aren't burdensome. That, that's what love does. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, the pull of the world, the distractions of the world, the idolatry of the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. 
So, so love for God needs to be specifically identified. That's what John means when he says, for this is the love of God. That means that other things, other things don't accurately measure your love for God. Pinpoint it in your mind. So let love be genuine. No pretending, Paul says. Refuse to fake spirituality. Constantly look to the reality of your love for God and others. Let it be genuine. Let it be the real you loving the real God. And now you come to the the rub of this text. Point number three. How am I going to know if my love is genuine? I mean, I want it to be. You want it to be. Point number three, love is only pure when it is the declared enemy of all that is evil. Abhor what is evil, verse 9. Abhor, there's the verb. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast, there's the other verbs. Hold fast to what is good. So, so for the sake of outline, I've, I've made this a second thought, but there's a sense in which it's really just an expansion and an expression of love being genuine. So you look back. You look back at Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let me just refresh your mind. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So if you're, if you're going to not take the world's shape, it, it starts with a renewed mind. It doesn't start with the actions. It starts with the affections and the thoughts. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So those two verses, they kind of set the stage for everything else Paul's going to say in his letter to the Romans. And and there's a sense in which we're still dealing with the meat of those two verses even though we've moved on in terms of sequence through others. So, Paul's words in our text about abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good, verse 9, they, they tell us a great deal. Now I'm echoing again. They tell us a great deal about what Paul means when he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, verse 9 Abhor what is evil, cleave to what is good. That's what the mind looks like when it's not conformed to the world. Do you see what I'm trying to say in there? Verse 9 reveals something distinctly Christian about the concept of love for God. And I want you to see how different the Christian view of genuine love is. To do it, we need to, we need to pull together some of the basic thoughts of this verse. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Cleave fast to what is good. So, so here are the earmarks 
of the kind of renewed perception the Holy Spirit wants to bring into our minds. Now I want to give you some principles as we kind of gear into the home stretch here. Here are some of the points of understanding that a renewed mind starts to feel the weight of. A. Absolute evil and absolute good really exist. And they exist independently of our own subjective opinions and values. That just follows from the text. Abhor what is evil, cleave to what is good. You don't create what is evil. You don't get to define it. You just abhor it. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. We don't create the good. We don't create the evil. We either recognize them or we don't, but they exist. They exist as absolute standards whether anybody hates them or hold fast to them or not. I mean, something doesn't become good simply because a lot of people like it. That's what I'm trying to say. And something isn't evil simply because I reject it. Being pleased with something doesn't make it good. Being upset about something doesn't make it evil. And the reason this is so spelled out in God's word is this. Good and evil really exist because God really exists and he defines them. We don't. You can see that in Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of what is the will of God. What is good, acceptable, and perfect. God's will. That real will of God. It's perfect. It exists. That's what defines evil as evil. That's what defines good as good. It makes them objectively measurable. His will, says Paul, is good, acceptable, and perfect. That means if God says something is evil, it's evil, even if nobody thinks it's evil. If God says something is good, it's good, even if nobody else thinks it's good. God gets to define those things. They exist as objective realities. I want to tell you why this matters, okay? Pastor Don, Sunday night, you're getting all philosophical here. What are you doing? We have no idea how far or how low we will sink apart from a radical change in our relativistic thinking. I was reading recently Christianity Today article Dinesh D'Souza quotes atheist Peter Singer in an article called Staring into the Abyss. Peter Singer is a bioethicist at Princeton University. He's a heavyweight. And he says this. Listen to this. Is this in your notes? I, I don't think it is. Okay, listen to this. My colleague... Helga Kuss and I would like to suggest that a period of 28 days after birth might be allowed before an infant is accepted as having the same right to life as others. D'Souza continues, Singer argues 
quotes, that even pigs, chickens, and fish have more signs of consciousness and rationality and consequently a greater claim to rights than do fetuses, newborn infants, and people with mental disabilities. Singer continues, Rats are indisputably more aware of their surroundings and more able to respond in purposeful and complex ways to things they like or dislike than a fetus at 10 or even 32 weeks of gestation. The calf, the pig, and the much derided chicken come out well ahead of the fetus at any stage of pregnancy. Do you hear what I just read? We need to be alert to the fact that it is perfectly scriptural not just to disagree. It is perfectly scriptural and righteous to abhor that kind of thinking. But if we're at all surprised by that kind of thinking, then shame on us. There should be nothing surprising whatsoever about it. The mindset of this world as unrenewed by the Holy Spirit, and it considers good and evil in terms of what is established by human opinion and surveys and polls and laws. And what that means is human opinion is changed by argument, persuasion, or even mere advertising. And as human opinion is changed, so are good and evil changed. And what I'm saying tonight is, God defines what is good and what is evil. They exist all by themselves, apart from the recognition and the standards of a fluctuating culture. So, so in other words, as the media in particular changes our sensibilities toward any issue, be it homosexuality or abortion or infidelity, as our our sense of either acceptance or outrage is modified, then so are the standards of good and evil modified. They rise and fall with what we're outraged about and what we accept. In church, God wants to renew our minds deeply enough so that even when this world makes God's will feel socially unacceptable, we will still abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. In fact, that's exactly, now that I've given you that example, that's exactly the kind of transformation Paul is talking about in Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to this world. There's a shape to this world. But it's not yours. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So, there's one thing. A, what is evil and what is good, they exist objectively because they're rooted in the will of God. B, surprisingly, I think, and we're, we're, you still okay? Okay. Surprisingly, it's not enough merely to do what is good and not do what is evil. You would think that would be fine. As long as I'm not doing evil and I'm doing good, that should be it. But it isn't. That's actually not what this text is about. Abhor what is evil 
Hold fast to what is good. Read those words carefully. Paul, Paul doesn't require the same kind of response to evil as he does to good. They're not the same. The response to do good is outward. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Be persistent in it. The response to evil is inward. Technically, this isn't even a verse where Paul tells us not to do evil. He's not talking about your actions at all. When he says abhor what is evil, he's not talking about not doing it. He's talking about what you feel inside when you're exposed to it. Agreed? It's, it's, the, it's something visceral that he wants. It's not just don't do evil. Make sure your stomach churns at evil. Make sure you can't sleep when you think about the evil that's being done. That's what he's talking about. We're supposed to be repulsed. We're supposed to be revolted. We're supposed to be agitated. Sin isn't just a list of don'ts to the renewed mind. The heart has been changed. It loves God, and it's been changed toward evil. It isn't just a list of things I remember not to do. I can't be detached emotionally from wickedness. That's what a renewed mind does. It's, it's how the renewed mind just reacts to evil and sin. This is miles from the world's viewpoint. You see why don't be conformed to the world? This is totally different. Make no mistake about it. This world, this world applies no pressure whatsoever to turn us all into axe murderers. But it applies relentless pressure to erase the Holy Spirit's work of birthing an abhorrence towards sin. It is urgent and committed to removing any absolutes. That's how the world thinks. It wants to turn abhorrence into apathy, and apathy into acceptance. That's the march of the course of this age. Let me try and say it this way. The first goal of Satan in your life isn't to make you do evil. No, sir. That's not goal number one. The first goal of Satan is to make us Accept evil. To make us apathetic about it. To keep us from abhorring it. And the tool of choice to accomplish that is the relentless devotion of the media, political systems, just to force us into an undiscriminating tolerance. We are made to feel small if we cling to abhorring what this world accepts. And many Christians just collapse under that kind of pressure. C. The reason Paul calls for this inward, passionate abhorrence of evil is tied to his understanding of what genuine love is. Read it all together in, in Romans. I don't mean read it out loud. I just mean see the whole verse all together. 12.9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So, so we've seen that the abhorring of evil is tied to genuine love for God and for others, including this fallen world. 
Why isn't it enough just to do good and avoid evil? It's not enough because evil doesn't just hurt me. Even when I'm, when I'm the one doing the evil, others are encouraged in it. And that's precisely why Paul, in his great treaty on love, says something that a lot of people just gloss over. He says, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love rejoices in the truth. So your goal isn't merely to teach your children not to do evil. That's a great accomplishment. But it's not enough. Temptation gains ground in all of our lives by millimeters. The only heart that is safe, spiritual, is the one that not only resists doing evil, but resists tolerating it. So your job is to teach your children to abhor what is evil. Not people, sin. Abhor what is evil. Four. It's not enough just to do good. We must hold fast to it. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Let me try and finish up quickly. If you're doing something good, maybe you're doing something in this church. It doesn't have to be, but maybe you're doing something that is good and you're doing it in the church, and that's great. Doing something good is 50% of the task. But press this into your mind. The spirit of this age seeks to pry doing good from your grip. You, you can't have a mild commitment to doing good. That's why Paul uses those words, hold fast. I don't, mean to be, I don't mean to be overly graphic, but that word hold fast, it is exactly the same Greek word that Paul uses here. 1 Corinthians 6.16. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute? That word joined, it's exactly the same Greek word as hold fast. That's what he's talking about. I know it's a graphic image, but it makes Paul's point. If you're doing something good and righteous, if you're helping the poor, working with child care plus kids, giving out food baskets, visiting the sick, reading your Bible, committed to prayer for missionaries, faithfully ministering in your local church, whatever it is that's really, really good, if you're doing it, never stop doing good. Keep at it. Hold fast to it. Don't be pulled away into lesser things. You don't have to change your mind about what's good to give up on what's good. Whatever you're doing that's good, put it this way, whatever you're doing that's really good, be stubborn about it. Be stubbornly committed to it. Don't just do it. Hold fast to doing it. Embrace doing it. Resist all the petty, puny, unthankful voices that nag you away from it. Hold fast to what is good. Oh, man, how long, Pastor Don? Uh, only till Jesus comes back. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Never stop abhorring it even if nobody else abhors it. Hold fast to what is good. With all your might, be stubborn about it until Jesus comes again. 
I would submit to you, that's a pretty good 14 verse passage right there. 